Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is award-winning journalist and broadcaster Misha Glenny. Misha first came to prominence for his coverage of the Balkans at the time of Yugoslavia's collapse. He went on to publish a vast best-selling history of the Balkans in 1999, and his expertise in Eastern Europe provided a starting point for his latest book, MacMafia. The breakup of the Soviet Union and the liberalisation of Eastern Europe are two of the key forces which have contributed to the massive rise in organised crime in the past two decades. The book involved Misha in three years of travelling, research and writing in locations as distant as Colombia, Dubai and China. When we met, I asked him what had started him down this path. I identified this phenomenon that it emerged out of the collapse of communism and globalization that had seized a large part of the global economy and global politics and yet was only ever discussed incidentally or anecdotally. And so what, what I felt I wanted to do with it was to, was to map this phenomenon and basically lay down the basic cartography of how organized crime corruption you know, the new capitalist classes of developing markets and consumer attitudes in in the West had created this incredible space of the shadow economy. But it's only a basic cartography and it's for other people now to build upon it. Did you find in the process of researching the book that some of your own preconceptions had to be re-evaluated about the nature of the people that you were you were dealing with. I mean, it struck me that in the organized crime tag, organized is, is just as important as, as the crime part. Well, it certainly changed my perception. I mean, the interesting, the, the changed my perception of the whole sense of organized crime is, is that it's actually much more decentralized and arbitrary than it may at first see. You have seen, you have one or two organizations which are notorious some of the Moscow or Russian crime gangs, the Colombians and their cartels and so on. But actually, if you look at the structure of those organizations, despite the sort of legendary position that figures like Pablo Escobar, the uh, late leader of the Medellin cartel, despite those, those figures and their uh, folklore projections, actually they're very decentralized organizations. So that when, Medi- when Escobar is killed, Nothing happens in terms of the distribution of cocaine around the United States. You can decapitate the head of an organization, but the organism continues to live. It's almost as though there is no central nervous system, but every little bit has a functioning central nervous system that can act independently of any other bit of the organization. And this is something, as I look particularly into the Russian organized crime communities, I noticed was very striking that essentially, although you did have a boss, the boss was essentially an organizer who would accept tributes from the various organized crime groups below him. And in exchange for that, they were able to claim themselves to be part of this, uh, in the case of the group I looked at in Russia, the Sonseva organization. And this gave them tremendous kudos. And it also alerted other people that in the event of you facing down somebody like a member of Sansevar, then they would be able to mobilize all sorts of other groups whose threat of violence was convincing. 
And the setup you just described of the decentralized nature of, uh, of a drugs cartel, for example, sounds very like you know a fast food franchise, doesn't it? And that sort of brings up the point that that the, the black economy kind of apes the structures and the approaches of, of the white economy. I, I think what the black economy does is it looks and sees which of those bits work and which don't. And the franchising is one bit that definitely works. And that's where the title of the book, McMafia, comes from, is, is it's like uh, McDonald's. You know, and there was this case that I came across in the research, according to Mark Galliotti, who's um, a British academic who works a lot on organized crime, was that the Chechen mafia in Moscow, who were a very powerful Moscow uh, mafia, were, was effectively selling its name to organizations around Russia, even though those organizations did not have to contain a single Chechen in them. You mentioned the, the marijuana producer in British Columbia, and that seemed to me to really bring up a big ethical question, because on one side of the Canadian-American border, you've got Canada, who have got a much more liberally inclined attitude towards drugs and then in the south you've got the united states who've got their their war on drugs which you know for the past 25 years hasn't delivered what what the billions of dollars that have been pumped into have been expected to deliver and i thought that really brought up a big ethical issue about how you actually tackle crime because the prohibition creates the conditions in which it flourishes and yet society doesn't seem ready to to do anything about that well i think it's more than an ethical question it is an ethical question, but it's also a political question. And indeed, it's an economic question. This is, I think, probably the biggest single issue that emerged from the book. The other issues which encourage organized crime, like poverty in large parts of the world, excessive spending power in the Western world, and so on, those are things which equally apply to the to the licit markets. And in that sense, organized crime is is no different. But in this one, in the narcotics issue, the drugs issue, there is a, a real problem here of appallingly misdirected policy, that is the war on drugs, which, although primarily an American venture, is to a degree supported by the European Union and Canada. And those are the two critical geographical areas beyond this. Now, you're right that in Canada, attitudes are generally more liberal, although the current administration of Stephen Harper, the minority government, is very hostile to drug law reform. But this is creating tremendous problems now in Canada as well, with Harper's relatively hardline policy, because it is accentuating a competition in uh, British Columbia in particular, and potential for profits are being driven higher, and that means it is becoming more violent. And what's happening in British Columbia also around Vancouver and the West Coast is, is that you're seeing a, a merging of the relatively benign industry of marijuana with the cocaine industry. And people involved in the cocaine industry also trying to get a piece of the action of the marijuana industry. When you get further east in British Columbia and you just have the marijuana industry, which is uh, largely driven by what are called mum-and-pup grow-ups, which are just ordinary folks, you know, having a little marijuana farm in their basement and uh, uh, generating a huge amount of money. I mean, 5% of British Columbia's, BC, uh, uh, British Columbia's GDP is the marijuana industry. But what you're now seeing because of that violent competition in Vancouver is the killings have become and have started in Vancouver, and this is over the past six months or so. And there are now regular shootouts 
and deaths uh, because of this in BC. This is a consequence of the war on drugs. There is, however, a steady movement in Europe, in some parts of Europe, in important parts of Europe, and in Canada, towards readdressing this issue and dumping the war on drugs. There is also some support for this in the United States, particularly on, a, on, a, in, on the level of individual states, where you now have uh, nine of them where, where possession of marijuana is not a criminal offence. The other pressure that is coming, I mean, if you were to see a Canadian government come in, uh, and they were very close about five years ago to legalizing marijuana in parts of Canada, and that would have been absolutely huge. And the United States was threatening all sorts of things if it so did. If that were to happen, this would also embolden Europeans who don't on the whole like the war on drugs. I mean, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown have been big war on drugs people. All they've done is handed over money to the Taliban and the Colombian cartels. I mean, their policies are just frankly ludicrous. And a lot of people who work in this industry know that it's ludicrous, including law enforcement officers. The key thing, though, that I think might change the United States policy is not Canada, but Mexico. Because the prohibition of cocaine has turned northern Mexico, now the favored transit area of the Colombian cartels, who have in turn allowed the development of the Mexican cartels. This is now a slaughterhouse, northern Mexico. It's beginning to affect governance in Mexico itself. It is spilling out into the southern United States. You have this hideous irony now of the weapons uh, used by Mexican and Canadian drug runners uh, being bought in, in the United States and then smuggled into Mexico and Canada. And in exchange, the U.S. gets a lot of drugs which its inhabitants are very, very happy to consume. And that destabilization of the United States and the second phenomenon of the area of productions of narcotics moving away from developing world countries like Afghanistan and Colombia and into um, the areas of consumption, so marijuana production here in the United Kingdom, in Canada, in U.S. ecstasy tablets, left, right, and center, and so on. This may force a change because the availability of narcotics is going to be so dramatically improved than it has been up until now. It is also, if you were to change the war on drugs and essentially move towards legalization of narcotics, you would wipe out half of the world's organized criminal syndicates and the ability that they have to make money more or less overnight. So, uh, you know, I argue very, very strongly for a major drug law reform. Otherwise, you're just going to ensure that the bad guys continue to be very rich and continue to be able to buy weapons as, they, as the Taliban does in Afghanistan to undermine Western strategic interests there. People listening to this may think, well, you know, I don't buy drugs, I don't buy illicit cigarettes, I don't visit prostitutes. Organized crime doesn't really impinge upon my life. But there is a way in which organized crime is, is coming looking for you as a, in the form of cybercrime. Well, cybercrime, cybercrime, I went to visit some cybercriminals in Brazil. Brazil is an unlikely place in most people's minds as a center of cybercrime, but it's one of the four big cybercrime centers in the world. You have a lot of young people who are well-educated, access to computers, but not access to jobs. This is the fastest growing sector of organized crime in the world because organized criminal syndicates who now what they tend to do is to employ 
keen hackers and crackers in order to make the money. They realize that in terms of detection, this is much, much harder at the moment. And there are millions and millions of attempts going on daily to hack in not just to your own personal computer to try and get money out of your account, but also into big corporations in order to do so-called data kidnapping, where they can lock up your key information and you will only get it back if you pay a ransom of $100,000 or whatever it is, and they'll unencrypt it. Attacks on the Pentagon, attacks against state institutions all over the world. There is an exploding phenomenon of cyber crime and cyber warfare, and you are very, very vulnerable as a personal computer user. The second problem with cyber crime is the whole uh, issue of identity theft. And this is a really frightening crime, identity theft, which is proliferating and has started to proliferate all over the Western world since the fall of Lehman Brothers. What you're seeing with the credit crunch is a shift away from some traditional crimes, you know, the purveyance of services like um, women being trafficked for sex or narcotics, people have less money to spend on, on drugs, particularly recreational drugs. And so, as with anything else in the recession, they are going down. What is going up are two things. One is cybercrime and fraud, and the other thing is counterfeit goods. Let me ask you finally, Do the, the book sort of describes an sort of arms race between the law enforcement and the, the criminals. Do you feel that one side or the other has the upper hand at the moment? How do you see the, the future? Yes, I think organized crime has the upper hand because what you have not had, as they have grown exponentially since the early 1990s, is any concomitant increase in resources available to law enforcement. You also have huge difficulties with issues like civil liberties, although it seems like the government in the United Kingdom is less concerned about those than some other governments. But that doesn't always help the police, in, in my opinion. They need more resources, law enforcement. They need to have better cooperation amongst themselves, both between, say, in the United Kingdom, between the various police forces and the central agencies like the, the Serious Organized Crime Agency. There is still pretty, there's a lot of mutual suspicion between these organizations, not to mention between police forces of different countries. There is some improvement going on there, but it's not brilliant. Not nearly enough is done and something like those people being trafficked, either for labor or for sexual purposes. And it's interesting that, you know, where you see the greatest concentration of human suffering as a consequence of organized crime, which is trafficking, you see the, the least resources being channeled into that by political instances because it basically, it doesn't work that well with the electorate and, you know, with populist media outlets. So there is a lot to do, but I believe that like other major challenges facing the world, such as climate change, it is theoretically possible for the global political elite to actually do something about it. What is lacking is any sense of political vision or political will. And so while I believe that it's possible in theory to counter these problems, in practice, I think we have to take the sceptical view.